good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around podcast. Still in our home confines, not the confines of our nice studio that hopefully soon we'll get back to. We are now in New York State, in Western New York anyway. We are in phase two. means eventually I can get a haircut, which I badly need. We could do a lot of things that we used to deem as normal. It's getting there. Unfortunately, the pandemic and the quarantine has taken very much a backseat over the last half of a week, I guess, in this country, let alone in Rochester, with the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. The country's reaction to the video has been predictable. If, if you think about what we've seen as a country, these are all too common, these videos of unarmed men killed by police. And I've always been pro-police, and I'm still pro-police. But being pro-police doesn't mean you excuse a murder by a police officer. And that's quite simply what this was. Three other officers stood and watched while Derek Chauvin kept his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. The last couple minutes of which Floyd was unresponsive. Now, once did anyone say, hey, dude, we got he's something's wrong here. Nobody decided to help him out. I don't know how a mind works that you are essentially taking the life of another human being and just seems like no big deal. I don't know how anyone could get to that. I'm just. That's not me. It's not how I'm wired. I, I would never be a very good person to – I feel guilty if I run over a squirrel with my car. I'm just not wired that way, and I'm not a hunter. But to watch that and not be bothered, not be disturbed, I just don't understand. And, and since then, the riots and protests that have gone on, and you, you almost can't say one without the other. Here in Rochester – on Saturday, I felt that three things happened. One, we had a very peaceful and poignant protest for the Black Lives Matter rally. After that, agitators that our local leaders claim were outsiders, not from this community. I hope that is proven to be true, by the way. But they were agitators, and they started the violence. They started the fire, if you will. And just because the fire started doesn't mean you should go and grab a gallon of gas and throw it on there. And unfortunately, that's the third thing that happened, is our local people did that. This started and they joined in. And uh, it was, to me, as disturbing of an image to watch police cars being burned, to read on Twitter about the looting, to see a video of people stopping their car in the street, running into a store to steal sneakers, to see a video of shop owners, husband and wife reportedly, being beaten with a two-by-four by people. It's our town. It's our community. This Rochester, New York. And this is what's going on. And our country, sadly, this is the biggest story. It's been strange to think that the biggest story 
arguably in our live our lifetime, the pandemic, the quarantine, has almost become a forgotten part of this. Social distancing. What the hell is social distancing when you're looting and when you're protesting? It's been a secondary thought in, in whether or not we're going to end up further back in quarantine because of this or maybe further ahead because if there's not a spike that comes up with all this lack of social distancing, maybe it is time we can all get back to work. But I hope when we do get back there, we could just, this is my message and this is all I'm thinking. Just don't be an asshole. You look at these people who are looting or the officers who let Derek Chauvin kill George Floyd, you're being an asshole. And that totally makes our situations worse. Be good to each other. It's just not that hard. And, you know, I, I used to be in media, and I guess through doing this, I'm still tactically in the media. But the media's reaction is one that I think deserves some scrutiny as well. Let's face it. The media is based on web clicks. We do this podcast and every week we hope people will tune in. We hope people will click on it and eventually that'll lead to something. That's, that's a good thing. You get clicks. That's what media has become nowadays. Last night, we're doing this Tuesday morning, June 2nd. Last night, our president walked from the White House to historic church that was burned during the protests the night before. And while I watched this, I, I flipped back and forth from CNN to Fox News because I wanted to see the media portrayal of what was going on. And it was amazing to me. It was, it was as if you were watching two different events take place, but it was the same event. It was the same exact event, but completely represented differently. And in this day and age of social media, where we're much better at speaking figuratively by typing on a keyboard than we are at listening, reading things that don't go along with what our preconceived notions are, don't work. And we're very quick to point out our thoughts, very slow to react to something that may be possible. You can believe many things. Some things are indefensible. And I think when you try to defend something indefensible, you know, it's there have been people who tried to defend Derek Chauvin's murder of George Floyd. How do you defend that? It's indefensible. It was a horrible act by a horrible human being. Oh, and one quick note on Derek Chauvin. I don't know what punishment he will get. It's going to be severe it better be severe but what prison can take that man in and let him serve the rest of his life behind bars like he should without an incredible adjustment to how they do things that man can never be around another prisoner because the minute he is jailhouse justice which is one of my favorite things by the way will get him it's just such an incredibly complicated time it's such a sad time. 
because so many people are being hurt. So many innocent people have been hurt in all walks. And that's not what this country was built on. We are so much better than this. And it's just been sad to me to watch this. Now, you're starting to see, and here's the good parts, you're starting to see people pitch in to help clean up a lot of athletes. Uh, I'll mention Ray Ray McLeod and his brothers in Tampa were down cleaning up after the riots Sunday morning. A lot of pro sports teams issuing statements. The Bills and Sabres, Kim and Terry Pagula, issued statements. All of these things are good if they're actually followed through on. Be better. Don't be a racist. It, it, it seems so stupid to even say that and to think that in the year 2020. But unfortunately, it's, it's at the very heart of all of what's going on right now. And I, I only hope that we could do better as a society. One thing about pro sports teams issuing statements, one team has not. Not surprisingly, the New York Knicks have not. They actually sent out an internal memo yesterday, James Dolan did, because of their business interests, Madison Square Garden and the entertainment interests, they did not want to take a political stand. The NBA has a ton of African-American athletes. It's no secret. It's predominantly a black league. The players for the Knicks knowing that their boss is unwilling to take a stand beside them at this time. If you're a Knicks fan and you have dreams of getting a free agent to come play there, James Dolan's the worst owner in sports. He threw gas on his own fire with his lack of reaction. It's just amazing to me how these billionaire owners can be such stupid individuals and essentially in James Dolan's place, a very bad person as well. So again, I hope next week, this is a foregone thought. It's over. We're back rebuilding, getting back to work with our community in a better spot. Anytime we have something like this, I always hope that we come out of it better As a society, we need to do better. We have to be better people. And my message to all of you, don't be an asshole. Look out for your brother. Look out for your fellow man. It's not that hard. It really isn't. There's no easy segue to sports, but I'm going to just move on from the world topics to sports. And, you know, again, here we are a couple days into June. And this is when we should be talking baseball. Baseball may or may not be played this year. The owners and the union are going back and forth to try to set something up that will allow them to play. It's strange because they they reached an agreement in March when the pandemic first hit and everything got shut down, where the players agreed to prorated salaries based on games played. That was what the players are referring to as their pay cut. So when the owners went to them with their proposal last week, which suggested pay cuts 
up to 80% in some cases. If you made over $20 million, you would get 20% of your salary. If you were a minimum salary player, you'd get 90%. It was a sliding scale. So the biggest names in the sport would lose the most money. That didn't go over all that well. That would have saved the owners a billion dollars in an 82-game season. Now, remember the prorated share of salaries, more games played without fans, most likely. The owners pay more money. Players make more money. The only money the owners will make is going to be from television revenue. That's why the postseason may be the most important part of this negotiation, because the television revenue for the postseason could go a long way to salvaging the owner's losses for this year. The players have all along wanted the owners to open their books, show us what you're making, and the owners refuse to do that. And whenever somebody refuses to show you what they're saying, I always look at it as you've got something to hide. If you're not willing to open your books, you're probably making a lot more money than the players know you're making. And that's the player's point. So the players come back with a proposal for 114 games and expanded playoffs. The season would start July 1st and end October 31st. I'm sure there'd be double headers in there. As a fan, this is something you would want. 114-game schedule, expanded playoffs. Yeah, bring it on. The owners yesterday countered with a 50-game schedule. I have to point out that last year's World Series champion, the Washington Nationals, had a 19-31 and record after 50 games. The beauty of baseball, or in some cases the agony of baseball, is it's a marathon. And if you're a team that's not off to a good start in a short season, your season's done. It's not something that baseball's designed to be. This will be very much, in any way, a bastardized version of the baseball season. But the players and owners continue to fight. Here we are June 2nd. If an agreement is reached tomorrow, they probably could begin spring training in a week, June 10th. Now you want to start the season July 1st. That's a three-week spring training, or preseason, if you will. How are players going to be in shape for that? Now, I know the players have been working out and all of these things, but if you think of the way pitchers are handled in preseason, first start, they'll go an inning, maybe two. Next start, they go three. Then they'll go four or five and build up to maybe six or seven by the fourth or fifth week of spring training. It's about building up. You go through that dead arm period. You you get over that and you continue to throw. All of these things need to happen. The injury risk for this season is going to be immense. Baseball, its players and owners continue to mishandle this situation. And it is incredibly unfortunate for the fans. I'm still amazed that people always side with the owners. 
yeah, these selfish players, these selfish players, they're all about the money. What do you think the owners are doing? A 50-game schedule, it's all about the money for the owners as well. The longer this goes on, and I, I'm giving it about a two-week time period, if in two weeks by June 15th there isn't an agreement in place, there will not be baseball this year. And that's sad because we as a country need a distraction, obviously. Baseball could certainly provide that. But their unwillingness to work together has been remarkable, and it's going to be incredibly costly. And I think fans, just like after the strike short 94 season, will go away and will stay away. You get used to not having something. You don't really appreciate it when it comes back. You might glance at it, but you're not going to watch it the way it is. Along the lines of owners versus players, and everyone always sides with the owners in these battles, many teams have gone through and released minor league players. Minor leagues, by the way, are never going to look the same as they did before. Before all of this pandemic, there was a plan to eliminate some 40 minor league teams. Well, that's going to happen. There will be no minor league season this year, and it's going to go away in a lot of little towns that their big thing was their minor league baseball team permanently. And to me, that's another death knell in, in the sport of baseball. All these little towns where, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Herkimer, New York, the Little Falls Mets, I was a Mets fan and still am, Little Falls Mets played the next town over. Guys like Wally Backman played there. Doc Gooden threw a few games there. To be able to go to those games in essentially a high school baseball field and watch players that at one point would become major league players was something I'll never forget. It helps grow the game. We can't all afford to go to games in New York City or Boston. But to pay $3 to go to Batavia and watch a Muck Dogs game, yeah, we can all swing that. And that's growing the game. But minor leaguers are going to be released and have been. The Yankees yesterday released 45. The Mets released 35 last week. Not Tim Tebow, though. No, Tim Tebow did not get released. He's still in the Mets farm system because he's a moneymaker. You know, this is all about money. We might release somebody who could eventually get to the show, but Tim Tebow, he'll bring in cash. So let's remember that. The Nationals did something that was unbelievable. Their owner's worth $5 billion. Their minor league players get $400 a week. The Nationals decided they were going to cut their salaries of their minor league players. Instead of paying them $400 a week, they're going to pay them $300. The national players were kicking in money to make up the $100 per player that the organization wasn't going to pay them. David Price of the Dodgers, he's not even been a Dodger yet. He was giving every minor leaguer in the Dodgers system $1,000. These guys who are minor league players are living a dr- playing for a dream, basically, and living day to day with very little money. 
Yes, they might have gotten signing bonuses at one point. Most of them, though, they weren't big signing bonuses. They were $30,000 signing bonus, $50,000 signing bonus. We read all about the big signing bonuses. Majority of minor league players don't have that. It's amazing to me a couple of the small market teams, the Twins and the Royals, have decided to keep all of their minor league players and will pay them for the entire year. It just, again, shows empathy from some ownership groups. There are a lot of ownership groups this year, I'm 100% believing this, that want this short season to go away. They're going to lose money. If they don't have to pay players, they'll lose much less money. Therefore, it's a lot easier for them just not to have a season. It's a really sad time in the sport of baseball, and I simply don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. I like that negotiations are seemingly picking up. You had a proposal, a counterproposal, another counter. This is how things get done. But at this point, they're still so far apart. The divide is so great that I think for them to come together and get players on the field in time to safely begin a season is a long way away. Keep an eye on baseball, and sadly, again, it's just not something that I think is going to happen anytime soon. The Lance Armstrong documentary wrapped up on Sunday night, and this is one of those things that if you watched it, you'll know what I'm talking about. This is as strange of a guy that I've ever seen profiled. He is a complete jackass. He's an arrogant dick is what he is. As unlikable of an athlete as I've ever seen, heard. Also, as dominant of an athlete. But he's a cheater. So is he truly dominant? But then he's a cancer survivor who raised $100 million for cancer research. The Live Strong Foundation has raised a half a billion dollars for cancer research. But watching Lance Armstrong today talk about all of these things that went on in the past 20 years, if you will, the guy's still the same guy. He's still a jerk. His hate for Floyd Landis is amazing. Floyd Landis is the person who blew him in, don't forget. Floyd Landis won the Tour de France, was disqualified because he tested positive. Floyd Landis set out for two years, spanned from the sport for two years. He then tried to come back, but Armstrong's team and others said he was too toxic. So, in a nutshell, Floyd Landis had some drinks one night and fired off a couple letters detailing the amount of cheating that he did. Floyd Landis and Lance Armstrong still hate each other. That much is clear. There was a trainer who was part of the U.S. Postal Service cycling team. Emma O'Reilly was her name. Emma O'Reilly was interviewed in this documentary and talked about different things. When... This all was going on. She told somebody different parts of the cheating 
that she witnessed. Under oath in a deposition, Lance Armstrong referred to Emma O'Reilly as a whore who was trying to distract her own misdeeds by accusing him. That's how bad of a human being Lance Armstrong is. Meanwhile, she was telling 100% of the truth. But to cover his own ass, that's what he referred to her as. And again, you start seeing all these things and you think, what an incredibly awful human being. And then there's the live strong part of it. And the bracelets that everybody wore and the amount of cancer research that's been done because of it. We all know somebody affected by cancer. Likely, their treatment somehow was benefited by Lance Armstrong. And that's why I've always said he's the most conflicted athlete I've ever seen. ESPN's Jeremy Schapp spoke about Lance Armstrong, and I think this sums it up as well as anything. Here's the thing about Lance Armstrong. He was a cheater and he was a liar, but he was also the greatest cyclist in the world and the steeliest of competitors. I have no doubt that he's the kind of guy who would not have hesitated to grab his slingshot, march straight up to Goliath and poke him in the eye. Of course, Armstrong's aggressiveness is his defining trait for good and bad. When you talk about Armstrong, you have to talk about two separate but distinct categories of wrongdoing. In one category, there's the doping and the lying about the doping. In the context of the sport, which was saturated with drugs, Armstrong made the decision to compete to win. And back in that era, you couldn't expect to compete if you weren't cheating. It's the other category of wrongdoing that remains so troubling and that forms the emotional spine of the 30 for 30 Lance. I'm talking about the character assassination and the lawsuits, the relentless hounding of his critics. Armstrong says in the film that he wishes he'd been a better man, and I believe him, but he still seems not to fully grasp how he got here, how he went from being arguably the most revered athlete on the planet to ignominy, and maybe that's the point. If he did understand, he wouldn't be Lance Armstrong. That, that just sums it up to me of what Lance Armstrong is and was and will never be, essentially. He'll never be a better man. He just doesn't have that capability in his body to be so. It was one part of the documentary that I thought was as telling as anything. His son is a college football player at Rice University. He spoke to the team as many colleges do. They bring in celebrity athletes to inspire the team. He didn't know his son's number. Your son plays division one football. You don't know what number he is. How is that possible? It was incredible. And to me, it's summed up how he just doesn't see outside of his circle. It's all about Lance. It's always been all about Lance. And it will always be all about Lance. One other thing that I found incredibly interesting 
So Lance Armstrong settled all of these lawsuits. I think he, the federal lawsuit or the lawsuit with the U.S. Postal Service was a $100 million lawsuit. I think he settled it for 5 to $7 million. So he lost his endorsements. He settled lawsuits. All of these things, a man who had significant wealth now loses a good portion of that. And how do you adjust to that? Well, don't worry. When Lance Armstrong had money, he worked with an investment firm. That investment firm took $100,000 of Lance Armstrong's money and invested it in Uber. At the time, Uber was worth $3.7 million. In 2018, Uber was valued at $120 billion. Billion with a B. Lance's $100,000 is worth 20 to $30 million. So Lance got the best Uber ride of all time. He has gotten himself to a point where Uber not only took it back, <laughs> it made him whole again. So don't worry about Lance. He's, he's still an asshole and he's still a rich one. And hopefully this year when his son takes the field at Rice, his father will know what number he is. Cause I mean, we all get confused. There's a hundred guys on the team. And how do you, how are you supposed to remember what your son's number is? Ridiculous. The Sabres last week announced that general manager Jason Bottrell will return for a fourth season. Sabres, of course, missed the playoffs this year in a shortened season. The 24 teams out of the 30 in the NHL will likely play in the playoffs. The Sabres, well, again, not so much. Not for the ninth straight year. Every year that the Pagulas have owned the Sabres, they have missed the playoffs. I understand the fans wanting Jason Bottrell to be replaced. The reality is, with the uncertainty of where we are in sports, there was no way, in my opinion, that Jason Bottrell was going to be fired. The team has gotten better. They were a game under 500 this year. They were going to finish with more points this year than lasted. 13 games left this year, and they were eight points behind last year's point total, they were improving, if you will. Unfortunately, the salary cap is not, and that's on Jason Bottrell. Dylan Cousins, last year's first-round draft pick, looks to be a star in the making. If that happens, that gives another piece to the puzzle. Bottrell's got work to do this offseason. He's got to figure out what to do with Sam Reinhart. How much do you pay Sam Reinhart? Very good player. Is he elite and is he worth the salary that it may cost to keep him? He's a restricted free agent. So while I understand the decision to keep Bacho, I don't know that he's the guy long-term to get the Sabres over the hump. I don't know that he's done a good enough job to deserve a fourth year. The reality is, with the uncertainty of our time and the financial commitments and the financial problems, if you will, and I don't know how big they're, I don't know if they're really problems, the change in financial status of their owners, we'll go that way, 
the Pagulas, all of their business is drying up, essentially, then you don't pay somebody to go away again. Not at this time. And that's why the real reason I thought Bottrell would stay. And he is. Kim Bagula, the president of PSE and the president of the Sabres, spoke about keeping the team intact, essentially, with Jason Bottrell. And made the statement, and I love when people go this route. She said, quote, owners sometimes have a little more knowledge than the fans, end quote. First off, if you're an owner, I hope you have a hell of a lot more knowledge than the fans. But if you're an owner who's pointing out your reason for doing something is because you know more than the fans, your ownership group is just throwing gas on the fire of a distraught fan base again. Kim Pagula's an incredibly bright woman. I don't know that she is has the right personality to be the head of a sports organization. She doesn't like to be challenged. She doesn't like to be proven wrong. And she certainly wants to be proven right all the time. It puts herself in a situation to not be questioned. She won't be questioned. Whereas the results are nine straight years without the playoffs. But insulting your fan base, taking on your fan base, your customers. Now think about this. When we come out of this pandemic, I'm not sure what a Sabres game is going to look like when it starts up next year. Likely January 1st. Assuming they play this summer and maybe early fall to finish the current season, give the players a couple months off. The NHL, the one thing they've done smartly, in my opinion, is that they've owned New Year's Day. They've stolen that from college football. College football used to own New Year's Day. Now college football gave it to the NHL. And I would expect that to be the day that the NHL starts up again. Now, if there are fans there, the Sabres, who used to have a waiting list, when when the Sabres were sold by Tom Galisano's group to the Pagula group, there was a waiting list of season tickets. Ted Black, in his infinite wisdom early on in that regime, decided it was a great idea to increase the number of season tickets sold. Ted Black, of course, was a crony of Terry Pagula's put in charge of the Sabres early on in their regime. By increasing the waiting list at the time, the regular game tickets, the single game tickets, were sold at tiered pricing. So it actually cost the organization money because at the time they were selling out. Well, there is no waiting list now for season tickets. There aren't any sellouts traditionally. Well, occasionally. You know, when the Maple Leafs play, a lot of people come down from Canada because it's much cheaper. So you might get a sellout then. But the, the fans continue to back away. In a market where it's one of the strongest hockey markets in, in North America, the Sabres are pushing away their fans. And Kim Pagula's comment last week will be one that we talk about with her, associate that comment to her, Going forward, that was the day she took on the fans. That was the day she decided that the fans were stupid. Because that's what fans hear. 
Not that owners know more. Owners do know more. What fans hear is what they want to hear. And that is, did she just call us stupid? I know a lot about the the team. I I actually read everything I can on the team. So I'm, I'm a knowledgeable fan. Yes, you are. I still hope every owner knows more than you. It's just not good business again. And Kim Pagula can't help herself. She can't handle PR. She doesn't do PR. I would hope that when all of this ends and we get back to whatever the new normal is, that the first hire at PSC is for a new PR department. And that only works with one caveat, that whatever the PR department sends up to management, namely the president's office, Kim Pagula's office, she listens to. Because at this point, it is amazing how often the wrong thing comes out of their mouth. I want to throw one other thing. We talk media a lot, and I I try to point things out about the media. It's amazing to me that the Bagulas, when they want to put something out there, this was John Worrell of the AP was who she spoke to. It's never the Buffalo News. It's never the guys from The Athletic, John Vogel or Tim Graham. They always go to John Worrell when they want a story out there that they don't want to be questioned on. It's as if he's become their patsy. And John does a good job writing stories, but it's obvious that his lack of criticism of the organizations and the Pagulas have benefited him because he now gets stories that they want him to have. So just throwing that out there for what it's worth. The Bills are going to be one of the better teams in the NFL this year, we think. We hope. They're working out down in Florida, and I really like to see this. Josh Allen seemingly put these workouts together. Stephon Diggs was down in Florida. Of course, all the Bills skill position players were down there. And this in this offseason, this type of event, this bonding, this work, getting things done outside of team facilities, outside of structured practices, is going to go a long way to which teams are ready to play whenever week one of this year's NFL season is. Too many times, players wait for management to tell them what to do. Well, the Bills took this on themselves. Went down to Florida, working out, and and a few things that have gone on with this. One, the attendance. Every skill position player from the Bills roster was down there, including Deion Dawkins. Remember, Dawkins got a couple touchdowns as a left tackle. So he was down there as well. I think that shows Sean McDermott's always preaching culture and process. This is the culture. When they're all working together, it shows this team is truly that, a team. The other part of this that I thought was impressive was learning that backup quarterback and newly signed backup quarterback, Davis Webb, was the guy 
was running these practices. And players were talking about Davis Webb, his ability to handle the practices, his ability to, to run plays, and his ability to, to get on guys and make sure they're doing the right things was impressive. I don't know what the Bills quarterback room will ultimately look like, but hearing this and understanding this, that Davis Webb is one of those guys who's at another level mentally, I would expect him to find a spot on the roster. I would expect him to be a guy that Sean McDermott would want to have around. Matt Barkley was down there too, and Matt Barkley's been nothing but a great character guy and part of this team for the last couple of years. Jake Fromm, the rookie quarterback from Georgia, down there as well. Those four quarterbacks, only three of them at the most, are going to be on the roster. But hearing Davis Webb handling himself and the team in this way leads me to think that if Sean McDermott has an opportunity to keep him, I think he will be on this roster going forward. Peyton Manning spoke to the Bills quarterback group via Skype. I thought that was pretty cool. One of the things Manning said about it was that Josh Allen was very eager to do so and very eager to listen. Look, Josh Allen, there's a lot of questions about him going forward. I don't think anyone will question his heart, leadership, desire. He has the intangibles that will eventually, if the skills and the other things go along with it, make him into a franchise quarterback. He's certainly somebody that his teammates want to play for. It's great to see a young kid like Allen. This is third year. This is a big step this year. Rookie year, you're trying to figure things out. Year two, you're just happy making improvements. Year three, this is the year. And for Allen to be acting this way in the offseason shows the maturity and shows the things that the Bills organization will really like going forward if, again, the -the on-the-field stuff escalates with him because it certainly needs to. You know, there was a thing that came out this week that I looked at and I got very interested. The Bills, by most accounts, are the favorite to win the AFC East. They should be a playoff team. Most people are picking them between 9 and 10, 11 wins for the season. But you start looking at the Bills' talent. And yes, it's across the board. Very good. A group of NFL writers got together and submitted their lists and came up with the top 100 players, regardless of position. They weren't ranked 1 to 100. Just the top 100 players in the NFL. Two Bills ended up on that list. Stefan Diggs, the newly acquired wide receiver from Minnesota, and of course, Jadavius White. They actually had the first 20 out, kind of like the at March Madness, the first four out. No Bills were in that. So the question is, does the Bills' talent equal expectations? Look, this roster is good, but it's not elite. You start looking at other teams that are expected to do well. And you look at position groups and the number of elite players that some of those teams have. 
seven, eight, nine elite players, and they're starting 22. The Bills have two. And while you start to, wow, they should have more than that. Who? Obviously, Diggs and Trey White deserve to be there. I looked. The next best player, in my opinion, on the Bills team is is Hyde, Carlos Hyde. Not Carlos Hyde. Micah Hyde. Micah Hyde is the next best player, in my opinion, on the Bills team. Jerry Hughes is probably the player after that. Would you consider either of them elite? I wouldn't. They're good players. Every team in the league would like to have them. They're not an elite player. That's the one thing that I think Bills fans maybe need to back off the expectations just a little bit because there comes a time where big-time players make big-time plays, and that's why their teams win big games. Who's the big-time player that's going to make the big-time play to allow the Bills to make the big game? Now, the obvious answer is the guy we were just talking about, Josh Allen, taking that next step. But for Josh Allen to take a step from where he is now, mid-range quarterback, probably in the neighborhood of the 14th to 20th best quarterback in the NFL, for him to go to the top five or six, you know, I'll, I'll read the guys they had on the top 100 list. Pat Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Lamar Jackson, Sean Watson, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, Dak Prescott, Aaron Rodgers. Two of those guys are going to retire soon, Brady and Brees. But who is Josh Allen going to take a big step and be in front of? Lamar Jackson, Russell Wilson, certainly not Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers? I don't think so. So – the Bills have great expectations, and, and for the first time in a long time, we can say that and feel good about it. I don't want to be raining on anyone's parade, but I think this roster needs more elite before I can look at it and say, this is a team that can win 13 games and go to the Super Bowl. It's not there yet. It's a playoff roster, and it's got great balance across the board. But it doesn't have a dominant offensive lineman, doesn't have a dominant defensive lineman yet. Maybe Ed Oliver becomes that guy. Maybe A.J. Epinenza becomes that guy. Maybe Tremaine Edmonds becomes that guy on defense. There isn't that guy yet. Offensively, there isn't that guy other than Stephon Diggs. And Diggs should have success because Allen, I do think, is good enough to allow him to have success. Maybe Singletary, Devin Singletary becomes that guy. Maybe Zach Moss, the rookie running back out of Utah, becomes that guy. I just, before I'm going to go further than this is a playoff team, I need to see the talent level take a step up in certain areas. Brandon Bean's done a great job of making this team competitive making this team a playoff team. His next job, and he did it this year by going out and getting Stephon Diggs, is bringing in the pieces that take a good team and make it a great team. Can he do that? Can that happen in Buffalo? So we'll certainly keep watching that. Hopefully next week we're talking just sports and not all the goings-on in the country. Be safe, everybody. Thanks for listening. 
We'll talk next week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around podcast.